Shrink Wrap Radio number 871, psychoanalyst Alan Karbelneg, PhD on the art of depth psychotherapy. And now it's time for Dr. Dave and Shrink Wrap Radio. You're on the couch again with Dr. Dave. And Shrink Wrap Radio is playing on again. Yeah. It's all in your head. It's all in your head. Shrink Wrap Radio. Shrink Wrap Radio. Shrink Wrap Radio. Shrink Wrap Radio. It's Shrink Wrap Radio. All the psychology you need to know and just enough to make it dangerous, it's all in your head. And now here's your host, Dr. Dave. My guest today, Alan Karbelnik, Ph.D., is a longtime psychologist and psychoanalyst who practices in Pasadena, California. Among his many publications is the new book, Lover, Exorcist, Critic, Understanding Depth Psychotherapy. Now, here's the interview. Dr. Alan Karbelnig, welcome to Shrink Wrap Radio. Thank you so much, David. I really appreciate being here. Yeah, well, it's great to have you on the show. You were uh, recommended to, uh, to me by... Um, uh, Michael Gellert, another psychoanalyst who's uh, been on the show two or three times. And mm-hmm. uh, so I'm delighted to have you. And you are both a psychologist and psychoanalysis. So maybe you can get us started a bit here by uh, telling us a bit about your professional journey. How did you get here with all these credentials and so on? Um, great question, and I have to do the four-minute or three-minute answer because it's a long and torturous story. Yeah, that's uh, fine. Uh, we've got plenty of time. Okay, so um, the very beginning is <clears throat> I come from a family of physicians. My father was an orthopedic surgeon. In fact, he made he had a good life till 89 last week. On November 8th, he would have been 100. He was born oh, in 1983. His father was a gynecologist, obstetrician. And in my sophomore year of college, I took a survey of philosophy course, and I fell in love with philosophy. I was a pre-med my first year. I remember having lunch with him. Was I going to disappoint him and so on? He said no. He wanted me to be a professional of some type, of course, uh, with our Jewish background. And so that began my journey into psychology, Uh, undergrad, UC Santa Cruz, UCLA, and then graduate school, USC. Uh, I immediately began working for a forensic psychiatry clinic where I was very well paid. That's where I cut my teeth in forensic work, um, which is still part of my work, but more or less and less. And at that clinic for four years and at the next clinic for four years, both of those psychiatrists were psychoanalysts. 
they got me interested in the work. Um, at that point, professionally, I was doing psychotherapy and forensic evaluations. Um, but starting in the 1990s, I went into psychoanalytic training at a place now known as the New Center for Psychoanalysis. That's a very intensive four-year program. Um, I got a second PhD doing that. And then since then, I've been in practice in South Pasadena the last eight years in Old Town Pasadena, where I do mostly psychoanalytic psychotherapy, couples therapy, little tad of forensic psychology. Yeah. How did you end up in Pasadena? I know it for the Rose Parade and uh, the Johnny Carson show. They used to talk <laughs> about it a lot. But mm -hmm. uh, uh, how did you end up there? So I love that question because I was uh, reared in the Inglewood area and then West L.A. I don't think I had ever been east of the 110 freeway in my life. But that second four-year stint that I mentioned in a different psychiatry practice uh, was in Pasadena. And um, it was a really a good job. It, it launched me into my private practice in 1989. But I, I'm telling you, David, I had no knowledge at all of Pasadena. Uh, my wife of 41 years, which is, you know, some kind of a record, like I think Gavin Newsom should send me a certificate or, some, or something, um, or better yet, a check. Um, my wife was born in Glendale, wandered around a bit. We've now owned a home in Glendale for 35 years because that's just a 10-minute drive to Pasadena. So the short answer to your question is it was work. Work uh -huh. that got me. Yeah, yeah. Interesting that uh, I grew up actually in, and I think I'm older than you are, but I grew up in uh, Southwest LA. Uh, okay. You, you mentioned Inglewood. I was actually, I don't know if you were, where you were in the infamous LA riots. Um, um, uh, uh, but I, go ahead, I, I can tell you a story about that. I actually grew up near the heart of that. I wasn't there. I had already been away to, uh, I was eager to go to school elsewhere and was lucky mm -hmm. enough to uh, get into the University of Pennsylvania. And oh, wow. uh, that was a mm -hmm. big trans transition. Uh, so, so yeah, your story about the riots. <laughs> so um, uh, we lived in Ladera Heights. Do you know where that is? I don't. Because very few people do. It's near Culver City, and it's nested uh, north and south of Slauson Avenue. Okay. So I used to uh, go with my dad when he was on call on the weekends, all the way down Slauson to Huntington Park, all the way back. At one point during those riots, right on Slauson on the south side of the street was a machine gun nest oh with an army guy. And I'd never seen a big, huge machine gun like that. It was really frightening. I think most of the riding was south of Slauson, but that's the closest I got. And uh, yeah, uh, we have to do something about income inequality, but that's a totally different interview. Yeah, yeah. Well, I um, I hung out a lot at the uh, at the southern beaches, Manhattan Beach and Redondo mm -hmm. Beach. 
and so uh-huh, on. Yeah. And, and that was, uh, um, uh, that's the, the best part of my LA experience that I recall. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, so uh, I have a copy of your forthcoming book, mm-hmm. Lover, Exorcist, Critic, Understanding Depth Psychotherapy. And I must say, it's a real tour de force. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I think it's destined to be a classic. Uh, I wish it had been around when I was a graduate student in clinical psychology at the University of Michigan, which I've had occasion to talk about on the show before. A very psychoanalytic program, and I I did not take well to that program. I, there was nobody that I wanted to grow up to be mm-hmm. among the, the faculty, uh, uh, so I was a little bit of a of a rebel. Now come full circle in many ways because I—I uh, uh, I think that the it gives the most complete sort of picture of, per, of personality dynamics. Uh, you know, so after having looked into all kinds of new age therapies and so on, and, and I did have a practice, private practice uh, before I went into university teaching for many years, so. Uh, mm-hmm. so, so that's a bit a bit of uh, my relationship to it. So that's why I would have loved your book because because it's personal. You mm-hmm. you you know you you engage in self disclosure, which mm-hmm. is really really important to me as as a psychologist and as a reader. And I I'm always really interested in the dynamics of the author. You know where they're coming from. So mm-hmm. I, and I, I love your passion and energy. And the the picture that you, that you sent, which will be in our show notes, um, and, and you said this is my handsome picture. <laughs> you said somewhat <laughs> so somewhat self mockingly, uh-huh. but but your picture actually reminded me of uh, Norman Mailer. I don't know if you ever uh, saw him. Or, I did. I read several of his books. Okay, yeah. So I saw a picture of him. Uh, I, I'm flattered by that, and I'm extremely flattered by the way you've received my book and described it. Um, it was a 10-year project, David. I can believe and, it. I can believe yeah. it. And I, like you, have always missed out. I loved how you said when you were studying psychoanalytic ideas, you didn't have any professors at the time that you could kind of identify with. Right. I I remember having the same feeling. And you rarely see a book or an article where a psychoanalyst talks about errors they made. And this book contains a couple of serious errors. Right. Uh, No no boundary violations, I say defensively, but definitely boundary crossings. And I also explained the psychodynamics of why. And you just don't see that anywhere because, understandably, people don't want to say mistakes they made. Right, and and people are rewarded and promoted for there's even in terms of the research and so on for uh-huh. positive positive results, and uh, yes. they don't want yeah. to hear that much about the other. There are some other good examples out there. That there are uh, other dynamic psychodynamic writers who I've also been able to say to them boy I wish I wish your book was uh, was around because they really get into the how to 
They, mm-hmm. give, they even provide you sometimes with concrete scripts that, mm-hmm. of course, you, you know, you can't literally follow, but give you a sense of direction. So none of that was around uh, when yeah. I was in school and, yeah. and it was sorely missing. So what led you to write this book? So this 10 um, year tour de force. <laughs> it was probably more than 10 years because I started and stopped, started and stopped <clears throat> when I was first in. So I was in psychoanalytic training uh, between 1990 and 1994. I can't believe how long ago that is. That's scary. Um, a couple things bothered me right from the beginning. One was they would advertise scientific meetings, and that was a throwback to the so-called modern era when science was king, which many people like me believe ended in April 1912 with the sinking of the Titanic, which was supposed to be the perfectly engineered, unsinkable vehicle. Right. The other thing that bothered me from the get-go was why are there all these different theorists that are fighting with one another? As you probably know, psychoanalytic institutes have literally split over theoretical differences. Yeah, and much of it struck me as the old uh, saw about how many angels can dance on the head of a pen. Exactly. And from the very beginning... um, and I put this in a paper, but the editors quickly um, deleted it. You know, Freud and Jung were buddies about as long as the Beatles were together. Okay. And yeah. so to me, it was another shame that, like right here, I have the Freud-Jung letters, which I've actually read a number of them. Um, it's like reading love notes. That, that yeah, then are wow. by yeah. And so then you have this also separation of Freudian from Jungian institutes that's been going on for a hundred years. So I developed three metaphors that I believe uh, work across all psychoanalytic disciplines at theories. And I had a paper published in February 2022 in the International Journal of Psychoanalysis where I introduced Basically, lover, exorcist, critic, I introduced as framing, presence, and engagement, which, if you want, we can get into this distinction later. But I chose lover, exorcist, critic, because I wanted it to apply to a large audience, psychoanalysts, patients, the lay public. And also, I wanted to make sure to encapsulate whether you're Jungian, Freudian, or Kleinian, relational, those metaphors work. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I love the fact that in the book, you actually uh, go through the um, the psychoanalytic evolution, the history of psychoanalysis, starting with Freud and, mm-hmm. uh, and, and moving through the, most of the major figures and, and each of whom had a, a school associated with their name, not necessarily mm-hmm. a physical school, but a school of thought, and uh, like Bion and and uh, Klein and uh, Melanie Klein and others, and so I was thinking, I was thinking about where, if you were to look at your 
psychoanalytic heritage, mm-hmm. you know, the field is still young enough that uh, people uh, up until very recently and maybe still could say, well, I was analyzed by so-and-so who was analyzed by so-and-so who was analyzed by Jung or analyzed by Freud. Do you, do you have a sense of your, your lineage that you can share with us? Um, I, I have a very clear sense of my theoretical leanings. Um, I, I don't have that kind of heritage. Well, let's see. I don't know who my first psychoanalyst in the 1990s, who was not particularly helpful to me, by the way, I do not know who analyzed him, who analyzed that guy. Yeah. I had two years of very helpful supervision from a guy named Jim Grotstein. Have you heard of him, David? Jim Grotstein, well-known guy, died a few years ago. Um, Say say his name again. Jim Grotstein. Uh, I don't recognize recognize it off the top, but... (laughs) He had been analyzed by Bion, who had been analyzed by Melanie Klein. Okay. So I have a little bit of that lineage, yeah, yeah, but not not through my psychoanalysis, through my own uh, super, my own clinical supervision. Yeah, sometimes it annoys it's, me. By the way, that stuff really annoys me because it sounds so cult. Yeah, like, you know, I have been practicing Lutherism since Martin Luther. Uh, attack his, his proclamation on that door, you know, uh, it's too inflexible. Yeah. Um, and and you did, uh, you mentioned the Jungian uh, Freudian split. And one of the things that, that I liked is uh, I sort of consider myself uh, a Jungian fellow traveler, right? I've, mm-hmm. But, and mm-hmm. uh, because so much of, of the, the Jungian approach appeals to me. And, mm-hmm. uh, and I, I'm free to uh, pick and choose what I like in, in, in the theory and, and leave out the part that I'm not so much into. And uh, uh, so one of the questions I wanted to ask you about, but I think, I think you really already uh, covered it. Uh, I was going to ask you uh, uh that you've attended a lot of psychoanalytic institutes and they seem to me like they were either Freudian or Neo-Freudian in their orientation. But I have the impression that you're quite open to the Jungian approach. Did you ever consider becoming a Jungian analyst? Um, By the time I knew what that was, um, I had already been masochistic enough uh, in terms (laughs) of getting two PhDs. Um, I've always been interested in the law and I considered law school, actually, but my wife threatened to divorce me if I did that. And then my joke was, of course, well, at least I could manage my own divorce then. Um, I have attended a number of lectures at the Jungian Institute. Like you, I really like a lot of Jungian ideas. And uh, three very interesting facts. One is, as I mentioned, I had four years of psychotherapy with a Jungian analyst, Michael Gellert, I'm currently consulting a Jungian analyst, Sidney Roth, and I have a Jungian analyst as my own patient, which was very strange because on the first session I said to him or her, you know that I'm not 
a Jungian, I understand archetypes and complexes a little bit. And this person said, no, uh, this person actually had an existential concern. And my first PhD was in humanistic existential psychology. Yeah. So that's why this person wanted to see me. So how strange that on my own journey of my personal work, the last 20 years, not the entire time, but have been with Jungian. So yeah, many good ideas. Can I say one more quick thing? Yeah. That, that paper I'm so proud of that was published in Feb 2022, um, where I introduced a standard model across all theories. Robert Wallerstein, who died searching for a grand unified theory, he came up with this phrase, uh, you can use the psychoanalytic opus for its theoretical metaphors. Yeah. So to adhere to the standard model, you, well, I prefer that you use those models as theoretical metaphors, but frankly, the standard model will work even if you're a hardcore Jungian, Freudian, or Kleinian. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and I think there's research, such, and, and you mentioned in your book, although you don't cite the research, but there is research that suggests that the different people of the different analytic schools, they like to talk a different theoretical perspective, but what they actually do tends to be more similar than not. Yes, I think that's super interesting. Uh, the one I remember is people fresh out of graduate school or training practice very differently 10 or 15 years in they practice very similarly yes yeah and in my view it all depends on the patient if i have a patient coming in and he's full of envious uh, uh anger i'm going to think about kleinian metaphors if if a woman comes in who is very interested in mythology and tells me her dreams every session I'm going to be thinking about Jungian metaphors, so on and so forth. Sure, sure. Now, I loved your personal origin story mm -hmm. uh, uh, of you uh, first as an angry, defiant young boy whose parents finally dragged him to a kindly psychoanalyst, and that sort of set the pattern for your life. But uh, tell us, and this is partly how I came up with thinking that you reminded me of Norman Mailer, who was mm -hmm. famously a very pugnacious interviewee. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, uh, which thankfully I'm not finding you to be a, pu a pugnacious interviewee. But tell right. us about, about the this, uh, it's a great story. Tell us the, sto the story of, of, of how your parents dragged you to a psychoanalyst, what, what you were doing, and then how that's, how and where that's still in your personality. So I'm afraid this is turning into a psychotherapy session with me as patient, and I I willingly go there. Okay, uh, great. You have my full consent. Um, so like so many psychotherapists, um, I had a very difficult mother, bless her heart. I am entirely responsible for her now. She's 95 years old, I'm what's called the successor trustee. But my cousin, in fact, called her a monster. And uh, it was, I would say, if this is before the child reporting laws, but if there were, if those were in effect, it would have been reported. 
um, she was angry or rejecting 100% of the time. I was kind of a sickly kid and she would come into my room and say, you, if you're sick tomorrow, I'm not going to feed you. I'm not going to bring you <coughs> fluids. I'm not going to take care of you. And I could tell you so many vignettes about her, but I don't want to diss her because I no. understand uh, it's all about the images in my mind now. It's not right. about her. Right. But the, where I came to the psychoanalyst is after t a zero to nine, let's say, being a, a rejected, frightened boy, uh, rather suddenly at around age nine, I erupted in anger at her. And I was so angry at her that my father had to work to separate us. So, like, that's where on the weekends he would take me to his office Saturday and Sunday so I wouldn't be around her. And I remember so clearly sitting on Slauson Boulevard in my dad's Lincoln Continental, like a big box, good orthopedic surgeon car, and saying, honest to God, David, how could you have married her, I said. And um, the... This was the beginning of what Michael Geller called very helpfully for me, my second abandonment, uh, uh -huh. because my dad was really a pretty good dad, very good. I would wait for the garage door to open for him to come home. And it was no question that he loved me. And I would say he saved me from falling into a psychosis. But around age nine, my, I think my father faced this terrible decision where all the kids were having problems. I was one of four. I was number two. Um, and I I really think, and there I am saying, how could you have married her? That he chose her over us. Um, he died about nine years ago. I thought about him so much last week when he would have turned 100. So him, I have much more mixed feelings about a lot of love and care and with my mother, I feel a combination of compassion and residual anger. But to specifically answer your question, I know it was about at nine, they took me to this guy at UCLA. Actually, I think his name was Ritvo. I think that was his last name. Um, and uh, he gave me the Rorschach, which many years later, I became an expert in myself, quote unquote, an expert, an expert is someone with a briefcase and a plane ticket, in my opinion. <laughs> right. um, this guy was very nice. <clears throat> I remember his office clearly. Um, and, you know, I, I forget what I wrote in the book in detail, but I know that he told my parents I was very angry and my mother delivered that to me uh, like it was my problem out of context. Yeah, you know, and you were acting um, out in in school. That was one of the things that grabbed my attention. Was uh, mm -hmm. you were you were starting to get into fights at school? I got into some fights. I was never good at fights. Yeah. I remember changing a kid's bicycle lock so he couldn't unlock his bicycle. I was sent to the principal for that. Oh, and there's something else in the book. Uh, I was yeah, I was basically acting out my anger. And I love this idea for any of you that are not very steeped in psychoanalytic ideas. The whole idea of acting out is that the feeling is converted into a an action so clearly 
that the emotion vanishes. So when you ask the nine-year-old, this almost happened to me actually with my friend Larry Wagner. Um, We lit a paint can on fire uh, near the school and it started to spread and we frantically put it out with dirt. But, But for example, had we burned down part of the school and someone said, well, were you angry? The answer would have been, no, I don't remember being angry. I just wanted to burn something down. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I was like a rowdy kid. And, and even though I started pre-med in college, I would say my journey of the soul really began with my troubled childhood. Um, some early psychotherapy I had in my freshman year of college uh, that also started to turn my life's work, if you will, into being a different kind of doctor, a doctor of the soul. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, I want, I want to go back to the title of your book, which refers to lover, exorcist, and critic. You mentioned that. Uh, how do these apply to or illuminate depth psychotherapy? So let me take them one at a time, David, so I don't yeah. talk too much. Uh, and I watch these people on TV pause for sound bites, and I'm trying to do that. So let's start with Lover, because Exorcist is complicated, Critic is not. Um, Lover started as prostitute, by the way, and I got a lot of pushback from that. I bet you did. <laughs> yeah. But pe- still- pe- people have said, hey, this is like, you know, uh, you're paying for friendship, you're paying for, you know, so it's yeah. only, only a small step to prostitute exactly right and um i get pushback from lover as well but i'm very clear in the book um and psychotherapy should not be rent a friend probably half of it is but that's not what it should be and the lover came about once i let go of the prostitute um what i call in my academic work presence is basically When the patient walks in, whether they have anger, acute grief, um, they're about to get divorced, the whole array of problems, you bring or you should bring your attention that is only found, in my opinion, in the first six or 12 weeks of a romantic relationship. Now, very clearly, no sex, no aggression, no touching, no hitting. Those two ends you never want to do. But the analogy is that whether you're Freudian, Jungian, Kleinian, relational, doesn't matter. Your job in those first five or 10 minutes of a first session with someone is to give them rapt, R-A-P-T, attention, um, uh, care, curiosity, um, respect. That's what the lover metaphor means. Yeah, and that's... That's such a gift because it's, uh, you know, it's it's rare enough in our world, uh, other than in in uh, special friendships, I would say. Yes, it is. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, tell and, us um, a, a little bit about uh, about the uh, the exorcist and the critic. I mean, I think I understand them, but I want our audience to understand them. I want to add one thing about the lover, though, because I used to do forensic psychology and employment law and administrative law. 
the only part I do now is administrative law, specifically for psychotherapists. And I've been involved in a number of sex with psychotherapist cases. And if you think about it, because I really want to make sure to put these boundaries on the lover metaphor. Right. There's so many female patients I have, we all have, that it's the most intimate relationship in their life. So you have to be very careful about boundaries because you're the only one you're talking to. Okay, exorcist. Exorcist is the most difficult. And in the book, I use a lot of examples from the patient Carlos, who's based on a real person, uh, massively fictionalized. But the, the exorcist involves the function of the psychoanalytic practitioner taking possession of projections from the patient. So I'll give you a brief example of a medical doctor who was my patient only about two years ago, serious personality problems, personality disorder level. His practice was in trouble. He was in trouble with the medical board. Um, Staff would leave a week after he hired them and so on. He did the typical thing where in the first few months of twice a week psychoanalytic psychotherapy, he would tell me I was spectacular. I was the best psychologist in the state of California. This, of course, felt great to me. Within a few weeks, I had fallen from the pedestal so badly, David. Honest to God, he would stand at my exit door with his hand on the threshold, his finger pointing at me. We did call each other by our first names. Alan, you are so incompetent that when I leave to when I leave today, you need to call a consultant and get help with your clinical work. You have no idea what you're doing. So I would take possession of that fury of his. Hey, the first couple of times my inside voice was, fuck you, man, how I'm insulted. But the inside voice quit quickly quieted down. I never acted it out, except maybe in small ways, like ending sessions early or something. And you basically digest that information, just like you digest the idealization, and you give it back to the patient to ingest. That's how the exorcist works. And I borrow a his my buddy, Ronald Fairburn, who literally uses it in his one of his papers. He talks about the psychotherapist is the true uh, successor to the exorcist. I cite that passage several times um, because I think it's quite accurate. That's one of the things that causes burnout, too, by the way. You don't want to have too many access to patients because it's very difficult on your body mind to take in these projections, process them, and re-deliver them. Pause now for the sound bite. Yeah, David. yeah. Okay. Did that make sense? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. Because that's the one that, uh, like, people that aren't psychoanalysts, even some of them have really asked me, oh, I don't get that. I don't get what you mean. So I, it takes kind of a lengthy explanation. Well, well I think many patients present the, the feeling that, in fact, they are possessed by some, hmm. you know, the, the symptoms are so feel like an alien presence. And, yes. and I can imagine that it's useful to actually 
buy into that metaphor for a while if, if mm-hmm. that's if that's something that they can latch on to and and uh, and and helps them to live with it yeah you know I've never really thought of this before but I haven't really seen any dissociative identity disorder patients formerly known as multiple personality disorder um, but I've evaluated several of them when I was doing forensic work and it, it would be very useful with them because usually at least one of their alters is a kind of a horrible critical evil being and yeah i i agree with what you said david um yeah yeah also i think with people that are suicidal you know that it can be useful to to say yeah there's somebody inside you that wants to do you in mm-hmm. and and uh, and you need to separate yourself from that uh yes yeah 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 i agree yeah yeah and in some and, ways you take possession I think a highly suicidal patient could be another uh, example of the exorcist where through your role as the lover being very attuned to them and really feeling their pain, I think it takes some away from them. And in some ways you contain the hope, you hold the hope that they're not able to hold on to. And that can be helpful as you deliver it back to them. Yes. And then the critic. I don't think you've said anything about the critic. I haven't. And the critic is the simplest. Uh, I remember having some struggles even making that chapter long enough. Um, if you think about literary criticism, or let's say you had a group of people. I just read a New York Times article where some groups, and I think it was 25 years reading Finnegan's Wake, which I've never read. I did read Ulysses, however, by James Joyce. Um where you might get together and critique a novel, I would say every person's life is like a novel and uh, a chunk of what we do as depth psychotherapists is critique their lives. Like, oh, Joe, you know, we've been meeting for a year now, twice a week, and I noticed that in that time you've been in three relationships with really rejecting women and then they end the relationship. Gee, I wonder if there could be some kind of pattern there. Yeah, uh, yeah, David, it's almost common sense in a way. A part of what we do is is critique patients' lives, whatever their recurrent problematic patterns are. We critique them in this safe, structured environment. That's the critic. I, I, yeah, I think the the art of that is to, if possible, to be able to put it out there as, you know, I'm curious about this, I noticed this, uh, but without them feeling, quote, criticized. But it's inevitable that at some point <laughs> they are going to feel criticized, and then that's mm-hmm. something you got to work through. Now, in my view, that's the most eloquent thing that's been said during this entire interview, and you, my friend, said it because right on, like, let's go back to that medical doctor guy. It would be months later that I would deliver to him the connection between these swings with me and the problems he's having retaining his own office staff, nurses, etc. Um, that would be a critique, if you will. But the whole art is like timing, uh, not giving them too more than they can take at any one time, 
um, observing if they're feeling criticized, like when they get defensive, that's the dance of the work. And you couldn't have said it better because mm. in some ways, all psychotherapy is a critique working, as you said, not for the patient to feel criticized. I remember <laughs> one of my very first supervisors, like literally 40 years ago, saying psychotherapy is the art of telling people they have bad breath in a way that they don't find in any way offensive <laughs> or critical. Whoa. What oh, a challenge. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a tough one right there. Uh, this is a huge topic, but uh, the role of the unconscious in depth psychotherapy. I mean, it's really, and there's a way in which it's all about the unconscious, but uh, let's, let's have you talk about the unconscious. Um, well, first of all, for the lay people watching, there's nothing really mysterious about it. Oh, good. I get a plug. I write a weekly newsletter called Journeys to the Unconscious Mind. And if anybody shoots me an email and takes because of my last name, it's a cinch to find me online. I will send you a free subscription. And I just wrote a piece last week, actually, where I discovered even cognitive scientists, neuropsychologists agree 99% of our brain is unconscious. Consciousness is something like 20 bits a second in processing. The unconscious is at least a million. Now, some of that is our organs functioning, uh, maintenance of temperature control, right. yeah. all kinds of things we don't want to think about or need to think about. There's a smaller piece that psychoanalysis calls the dynamic conscious, I'm sorry, dynamic unconscious, unconscious right. which is where the uh, really the meat and heart of our work is. It's what distinguishes psychoanalysis from any of the other forms of psychotherapy. And it's the idea, let's, let's just go back to the guy that tends to choose rejecting women and now I've had I've seen him do it three times over a one year period. That would be an example of what I hate to say the word, but Jung would agree what Freud called the word I didn't want to say was Freud, um, the repetition compulsion, which I call psychocognitive behavioral recurrent patterns is all they are. We all have them. Yeah. If they're if they're not unconscious, we would be changing them. And that's what psychoanalysis is all about. Nothing mysterious about it. A lot of it is childhood patterns that we observed or were part of that were so painful, we rendered them unconscious because we couldn't bear having them conscious. And the work of all different psychoanalytic practitioners is bringing that stuff into consciousness. Right, right. And I liked, um, you know, I wanted to ask you about the goal of psychotherapy. And actually, you you write it uh, of not psychotherapy, but of depth psychotherapy. Mm -hmm. you, summar you summarize it in the book with one word. Do you remember oh, really? what the word was? <laughs> I don't. Freedom. Helps. Freedom. Oh, yes. Uh, and I stand by that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
Well, let's see. How do I go about answering that? Um, uh, so the psychoanalytic psychotherapies have done a terrible job of branding themselves. And it's really a shame. And I hate that word branding. And I hate that now that I finally got a book published, I have to market it and go on Facebook and Twitter and all that stuff that and I be on podcasts. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> podcasts. Yeah. I'm going to be on one for the international psychoanalytic uh, next month. Um, okay. A guy named Harvey Schwartz. I don't know him. Have you heard of him? No. Anyway. Um, so, uh, yeah, the problem is people think the word psychoanalysis, which I think should be used to describe once a week, twice a week. It doesn't have to be four or five times a week. Um, let's see, in a nutshell, I'm going to get to freedom in a second here. Depth psychotherapy is where you look at childhood patterns, current relational patterns, meaning present day, and the relationship between psychotherapist and patient. You're basically looking in those three realms for where there's consistent patterns that reveal the unconscious mind. Uh, very essentially the psychocognitive behavioral patterns and uh, kind of a very recent riff of mine, David, when someone comes to see me and they've never been in therapy before is, well, we're going to, we're going to be doing two things. We're going to relieve the suffering you have because of X, Y, Z. And then by, by, taking a really intense look at you we're going to help you to be a more authentic person which also increases your freedom and autonomy uh that little riff turns out to be not so little but just the last part which is probably 20 seconds is literally what i deliver i started with a new guy on friday when i see him again this week i'll give him the riff we didn't have time (laughs) too many other explosions in his life i'm afraid so yeah 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 yeah. um you know we're living in a very anxiety arousing time i don't need to tell you that (laughs) but it's it's uh undebatable and um so what perspectives or solutions or comforts does the depth perspective provide? Great question. Um, So yes, our time is a perilous one because of climate change. We have two uh, hot wars right now, one in the Middle East, one in Eastern Europe. Nobody really talks about the thousands of nuclear warheads pointing at each other, that a simple human error could create unbelievable devastation it's dark it's dark uh i have daughters in their 30s i was young in the vietnam war but i was very active in the anti-war movement i've told them many times this is a hundred times worse than then and things looked bad then so what psychoanalytic psychotherapy can offer is that second part of my riff by reducing suffering that was part one helping people find their kind of true authentic selves, they're not only going to learn to treat themselves better, but they're going to learn to treat others better. 
And I believe it's going to empower them to take some kind of political action. Uh, lots of philosophers like Michel Foucault have said, there's no such thing as being not political. We are all, all political animals. So I think Aristotle said the same thing. So by helping people become more of who they really are, um, I think it empowers them to help change these terrible things uh, that are happening in the world. I have a lot of hope about that. One of the things that uh, that psychoanalysis is often criticized for is the expense of it. And uh, I noticed in your bio that you are or were involved with a a uh, is it a free clinic or a uh, to reach out to people who can't afford. Yes, uh, let's see. So May one will be twenty years. So 20 years ago, May 1 in 2004, and this really came out of my own guilt at um, my fees were getting pretty high. And as uh, if I had a single mom with three kids that was depressed and could afford $20 for psychotherapy, I didn't know. There was nowhere in Pasadena to refer her. So I helped to found this center called Rose City Center. Uh, that where you have pre-doc and post-doc clinicians, we now have 12 of them, um, that uh, the work isn't for free, but uh, the minimum fee is $30, and we have a scholarship program where we can see patients under there, under that amount. In the year 2022, we did uh, 6,500 sessions were provided to economically disadvantaged people uh since the pandemic it's now throughout california because we can do a lot of zoom psychotherapy and i must say if i dropped it tomorrow and i hope i don't it would absolutely be my proudest professional accomplishment that it's a training program but it's also a very active clinic and uh finally now there's money in the bank i'm still on the board i teach a class there every week and uh, rose city center interview looking for psychotherapy and you can't afford awful capitalist exploitative rates, go to Rose City Center. All right. And um, you mentioned Zoom. And I know Zoom really came into its own during the pandemic. Um, mm -hmm. How much of, of your work is on Zoom, therapeutic work? Okay, so during the pandemic... Or, or phone, because <laughs> okay. phone's also an option. <laughs> yeah. Uh, during the pandemic, I was probably 80% Zoom. I never stopped coming in. I would open a window and I had a fan on. Uh, I remember there's a guy I still see who is now 82. And there's no way he would do Zoom. He, he, a lot of his pain was because he wasn't able to socialize. He's a very gregarious guy, um, not as much as Norman Mailer, but gregarious guy. And um, I prefer in person, but I would say now, because of what happened, how the whole world changed in the pandemic, I would say 30% on Zoom, 68% um, uh, in person. 
And there's only one person that wants to be on the phone. And that's because uh, it's a 70 year old woman that literally doesn't want me to see her uh, uh, visually. But I have a 79 year old woman who is fine seeing me on Zoom. I always leave it up to patient choice. Like I choose my theories according to the patients, but uh, that's how I work right now. And um, again, I prefer in person, but Zoom is a lot better than phone. Um, yeah. For obvious yeah. 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 Well, uh, is there anything else that we haven't gotten into that you want to make sure that you get out while we're, while, while you're exposed like this? <laughs> um. Well, I would love those more scholarly interested folks to look up some of my writings. Uh, I've written a piece called The Psychoanalyst as Revolutionary. My first one was about the psychoanalyst as performance artist. I'm working on one right now called The Psychoanalyst as Prostitute. That one I'll have some trouble getting published. Um, my weekly newsletter, David, I put a lot of work into that. It's probably like you and your show where I never realized it would just go on and on and on. This will be the end of my third year, and it comes out every week. It's on Substack. As I mentioned, it's called Journeys to the Unconscious Mind. I offer everything from clinical vignettes to political angles, like a psychoanalysis of Donald Trump. And um, I take very few new patients, so I'm not really looking at that i work half time now and write half time so i think that's all that i can think of marriage is, and family is, the, is there a website that's kind of like the hub of of uh where people can find out about you and your work well my writings i have a new website just about to be launched i had a patient tell me it was tired looking which <laughs> i was a little bit hurt by um but it is at least 20 years old. So, yeah, and it's just alancarbelman.com. And that that has links to all my scholarly articles and to the weekly newsletter. And, David, maybe to this podcast. I don't know uh, if you maintain the copyright to it or if you allow other people to have, I do, a, yeah. have a link to your show. Yeah, so, you can put – You can. I'll send you uh, the, the – uh, the material that you can put on your website. Uh, oh, that'd be why, great. Why, why don't you spell your name for people so they have that? Because Alan is can be spelled many ways, not to mention your last name. <laughs> uh, my last name, man, I've been spelling. It's probably been five million times since first grade. So the first name is Alan, A-L-A-N. Last name is Karbelnig, K A R. B is in boy, E L, N is in Nancy, I G. Well, and my email address is just amcarbelnig at gmail.com. Okay, so people can reach out to you. Well, doctor and psychoanalyst <laughs> Alan Carbelnig, I want to thank you for being my guest today on Shrink Wrap Radio. And I want to thank you so much, David, for being such a kind and thoughtful interviewer and um, for giving me the opportunity to share some of my ideas.
It was such a pleasure to interview today's guest, psychoanalyst Dr. Alan Karbelnig. Not only is he delightful to speak with, but also I was happy to have him confirm many of my own impressions and biases about psychoanalytic therapy. When I asked him to comment on his anger as a child and comment on the anecdote that he shared in his book about that, he suggested that I was turning the tables on him and putting him in the position of being in therapy. At the same time, however, he also said he was willing to go there with me. Even though I had not intended to put him in the position of me being his therapist, I appreciated the trust that he was willing to extend to me. Also, I have to acknowledge that sometimes my questions do get to be unabashedly personal. As the good therapist that he is, he was making a process comment, but also indicating that he was willing to go along with it. I appreciated that. In a reciprocal fashion, I have to share with you that reading his book, I was experiencing tremendous positive transference. It was almost as if I was being in therapy with him. We did later speak about the pivotal role of the unconscious in psychoanalytic therapy. While I did not fess up about the degree to which I idealized him while reading his book, I'm comfortable sharing that with you here in relative anonymity. Of course, he will probably discover this deep, dark secret when he later listens to my commentary. My experience of transference while reading his book really underscores the role of the unconscious and the fact of just how active it is in so many areas of our interpersonal lives and is not restricted to psychotherapy. Introjection and projection are the theoretical components that underlie the process of transference, and it happens in marriage and teaching and work environments and pretty much everywhere else. As you heard in my effusive praise for his book, I found much to like there. I like his sense of humor that comes through and the self-disclosure that he shares and the way that he lets us eavesdrop on sample cases. In the example case history that he gives, we get a sense of what's going on in the therapist's mind and emotions, even some of the mistakes. You heard me wish that his book had been available when I was a graduate student, just learning about therapy. Those positive remarks were probably colored somewhat by my positive transference, but I still stand behind them. One of the concrete things that really impresses me about Alan, the man, the therapist, is the compassion he has shown for sufferers who can't afford the cost of analytical therapy. He shared with us his creation of the Rose Clinic, where for the past 20 years, clients have been able to get therapy at relatively low costs or even free. Such a mensch. For all these reasons, I'm happy to recommend his book to you, Lover, Exorcist, Critic, Understanding Depth Psychotherapy by Ellen Karbelnig. Hi, Dr. Dave. You have a fantastic podcast with fantastic interviews and a really wide range of fantastic guests. Thank you for what you do. 
But this message is about the not-so-fantastic reasons that some of your listeners don't financially support Shrinkwrap Radio. My silly reason? I've had a PayPal account for years and years, but it's associated with the email address for my small business. I kept meaning to talk to my bookkeeper about how an ongoing donation would and wouldn't work gracefully, but I never remembered to do it. And months went by. Every time I listened to a new episode, oh right, that! Just a few weeks ago, it dawned on me. Hello, self, you have personal email too. You could solve this by simply sidestepping your absent-mindedness. Account made, problem solved, donation launched. And what a silly reason to have taken so long. So listeners, what's your silly reason? Eh, it's already there, it's free. Why should I pay for something that's free? I'm guessing this is one of the most common silly reasons. But think of it this way. Lots of people are creating great content for free these days, which is pretty fantastic when you pause to think about it. And the free content that catches on and inspires actual people to spend actual money, that content is more likely to persist and to inspire other similar content. So by donating to Shrinkwrap Radio, you are an agent for content evolution. You're saying yes, I wish to help curate this space and encourage not only this content to continue, but also prove the viability for other similar content. Not donating because you already get it for free? That's a silly reason and also kind of self-defeating. How about, I don't have enough money to donate, okay? I challenge you to choose a teeny amount of money. It could be a dollar or a quarter or 11 cents. Whatever amount you could lose in the street and really not fret about it. That's a teeny amount. Each time you listen to an episode, put that teeny amount of money in the shrink wrap jar. Once that jar accumulates a few bucks, send it off. It might not make much of a financial difference, but it will definitely make a personal difference, both for Dr. Dave and for you. Or maybe you love the show and would be happy to donate, but you don't do PayPal, have never done PayPal, and never will do PayPal. Send Dr. Dave a check. Um, Here's a reason that's not silly. I've just started listening, and I don't yet know if the show is fantastic. Fair enough. Completely non-silly reason. So listen to another couple dozen episodes and then donate. And if, for some reason, you say, I've listened to tons of episodes and this is an awful show, Well, in that case, I hope you have a pleasant journey back to your home planet, wherever it is, and that your time visiting Earth was enjoyable. My name is Sarinda, and I am delighted to be a continuing supporter of Shrinkwrap Radio. Wow, Sarinda, you are a lively one. I'm so glad you decided to get it together and be a financial supporter of Shrinkwrap Radio, and thank you for your spirited encouragement for other listeners to join you. Next week, my guest will be family therapist Dr. Mark Karras on religious trauma. He's the author of the provocative book, The Diabolical Trinity. Until next time, this is Dr. Dave reminding you to be kind to yourselves, others, and our precious earth. You've been shrink-wrapped by Dr. Dave.
all the psychology you need to know and just enough to make you dangerous.